Good morning. Pull up. In 1894, there was a baseball game between the Baltimore Orioles and the Boston Beantowners. They've improved their names since then. Uh, um, these were two of the top teams in the National League that year. And at one point during the game, though, one of the Boston players, he was uh, sliding into third, and he got kicked in the head by the third baseman. Because baseball was rough <laughs> back then. Um, well, at... Of course, they started to fight, and then the benches cleared, and then they all started to fight. And then apparently, it didn't just stay there. It spread into the fans, and the fans started to fight. And then, according to the, the account that I had, the uh, stadium, somebody decided, that's a good idea. Let's, let's start a fire in a stadium bleachers that are made of wood. So the stadium ended up burning down. And not only that, it was windy that day, so the fire spread to over 100, I've read some accounts of it being 200 other Boston buildings, and burned those down. Now, thankfully, nobody was hurt, but the damage was pretty devastating. You ever been so angry that you lost all sense of yourself, like you start to make decisions that you wouldn't, you know, when you were in your right mind? Another example of this might be road rage. You know, uh, somebody cuts you off, and then you get mad, and so you start tailgating them, or you're weaving through traffic at high speeds and stuff, and so you can get in front of them and cut them off, or brake check them, or, or do whatever. Some people even do dumber things with it, but anger makes you do dumb things, right? Uh, clouds your judgment, makes you look at the world differently, can be destructive both to you and to others. Today, we're going to look at somebody who is pretty angry. And he's so angry that he says, like, I'd rather die than to see what has happened come true. So this morning, we're finishing up our short series in the book of Jonah. And so I just want to recap the book one more time for us. Um, and in chapter one, we saw Jonah get called by God, who told him to go and preach to the city of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of, Assyria, of the Assyrian Empire. It's about 550 miles away from Jerusalem. And throughout this series, I've been showing maps and stuff just to help us figure out locations for these things. But uh, recently, uh, the past week or two, there is one of the YouTube channels that I watch. Um, there, there's a former pastor, his name is Matt Whitman, and he overlaid a map of the Middle East on top of a map of the United States. And so I thought, well, that might be a nice way to help understand distances between these areas. So here's the map. And what you can see is Jerusalem is a little bit east of Wichita, Kansas. And uh, Nineveh, is, which is located on the, the uh, eastern bank of the Tigris River, is pretty much in Chicago. And so Jonah, it, when, as he traveled, he would have basically gone from Kansas to Chicago. And hopefully that gives you, it would take about a month to travel the way that he traveled. Um, but hopefully that helps you kind of get a little bit of better understanding of distances there. Um, well, except Jonah didn't go that way at first, right? Uh, he actually went the other way, fled west, running from God's command. And he gets on a ship toward this uh, port city called Tarshish, which was 2,500 miles away from where he was. So it would have been out in the Pacific Ocean on that map. Um, but following a storm, he's thrown overboard, and then he gets swallowed by a great fish, which God had sent. And after praying in the fish, Jonah was sent, uh, put back on dry land, where he then finally makes the trip to Nineveh. 
Now, as we saw last week, Jonah preached the message saying to Nineveh, saying that in 40 days, Nineveh would be overturned. And then Jonah kind of fades away from the story for the rest of the chapter. We don't really see him again um, until chapter 4. But we get a look at inside the city. And everybody, from the king on down, repented and turned to God, hoping that he would relent from his anger, that he would turn away from his anger. And he did. Now that should be where we end this story, right? Like, that's a happy ending, You know, an entire city turns to the Lord, and it's even a city of Gentiles. They don't know the Lord very well, and it should have been awesome. Like, Jonah should have been thrilled. You know, this was a great story. He could go back home and tell this amazing story of adventure and danger and people turning to God. But but that's not what happens, right? The story doesn't end here. Jonah's not thrilled, as we read in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Jonah was not happy that God relented and and didn't bring the destruction that he had threatened on the Ninevites. Now, the way that this verse is translated is that Jonah was greatly displeased. Literally, it says that it was evil to Jonah with a great evil, and he became hot. It's pretty amazing, though. Because Jonah was angry because God was gracious to these people, even though God had showed that same grace to Jonah when he was in the fish, and he was running from God. Like, he had ran from his duties as a prophet of the Lord, and yet God was so gracious to him. He, he didn't destroy him or anything. He didn't cast him out, but he brought him back to a place where God could still use him. And in reality, Jonah should have rejoiced because a whole lot of people got saved. But instead, he was focusing on himself. And then he prays to God in verse 2. It says that he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better, better to me to live or to die than to live. So finally, in the fourth chapter of the book, we finally get a reason for why Jonah didn't go to Nineveh originally. I read somewhere this week that there's some that said that Jonah's problem was that he didn't really know God. But he knew God very well. And this verse shows it because he knew even before he left home that God was going to relent from bringing calamity on the Ninevites should they return to him, should they repent to him. And he quotes from the book of Exodus where it says, the Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parent, for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This, this quote from Exodus, it is the most quoted scripture in the Bible. So it is the one that the Bible quotes the most because it is who God is. That's why it's so important. It's who God says he is. Moses was getting the second stone tablets from the Ten Commandments after destroying the first set when he came down and found the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. And he had asked the Lord to show his glory to him. 
And the Lord granted that. And he, as he came down, that's what he said, that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, he bounds in love, he maintains love to thousands, and forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And that's what Jonah's mad about. And honestly, I kind of get it. Like, I, I kind of understand why. Because if you think about who the Ninevites were, it makes sense that he wouldn't really want to see them forgiven. They were a, a, a power at the time, and they were always a looming threat to the Israelites, whom Jonah did not want to see destroyed. And so he probably looked at this as God forgiving people who weren't his chosen people. Um, and they, they, he let that take precedence over his own people who followed him. They were evil. I mean, they were, as we described in the first week, a terrorist state with the things that they did to their enemies. And yet, they turned to God, and he relented. Now, you can also see in this prayer that it's, it's very Jonah-focused. Like, uh, nine times in Hebrew, the word I appears. Well, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was at home? Isn't this what I was trying to stop when I ran away? I, I knew you're a gracious God. And very much the selfish part of this prayer is the last part in verse 3 because he gets to that point where he's like, whatever, take my life, kill me. You know, it's better for me to die than to live. Now, there's a few times that we see prophets ask for their lives to be taken in Scripture. Elijah was one. After he fled from Ahab and Jezebel in 1 Kings 19, he prayed for the Lord to take his life. And yet God didn't do that. And he graciously sent an angel to take care of him. Moses, in Numbers 11, after God sent manna and quail that the Israelites angered the Lord, because they, they complained pretty much whenever they left Egypt. Um, but he was struggling leading such a large group of people, and he asked God to take his life. And again, God did not, but he was gracious, and he, he had Moses share the burden of leadership with 70 elders. There is a good thing about this prayer in that I think it can also help us to understand that we can talk to God, talk with God in any situation that we have come up. And, you know, you can see Jonah's angry with God, but instead of not talking about it with him, Jonah brings his complaints to the Lord very directly, right? He uses scripture to point out where he's angry with God, using God's character against him, and he's complaining about God's goodness, now, sometimes I think that we struggle when we're mad, even when we're mad with God. You know, we don't want to talk about it, right? That's what I do when I get mad. I'd rather not talk to anybody until I've calmed down, partly because I know that I'm going to say something that I'll regret. And I think that we can do that with God, too, but we shouldn't have to. We don't have to, partly because he already knows what you're thinking, so you might as well just have it out with him. And he's got broad shoulders. Uh, I think he can handle it if we unload our thoughts. Like, if you look in Scripture, you're going to see that. You look in some of the Psalms. You look in Lamentations. You'll see people who are bearing their hearts to the Lord. And so we can do the same. So what's God's response in all this? We see that in verse 4. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? When you're having some irrational anger, the last thing you really want is somebody to come along and say something rational, right? 
Like, I know when I've gotten angry playing golf after hitting what I think is a bad shot, somebody will come along and say, well, Nick, it really wasn't that bad of a shot. You're just in the rough or anything. And I'm just like, no, I don't, I don't want to hear that right now. I want to be mad. Let me be mad. Now, side note, I've gotten a lot better about that this year. So <laughs> I am not near as angry this year. There are people who have played with me who can attest to that. <laughs> but Jonah is so mad. He's rationally mad, really. And he just told God that he wants to die and that it would be better for him to die instead of to live. And, and God comes in and he just asks one simple question. Is it right for you to be angry? Can you, can you see the tenderness in that response? Like he could have come at him, right? Like, look, I just saved you, you know, from being an idiot. I saved you from a fish or I saved you with a fish and then from a fish because I had it vomit you up onto the shore have a little bit of compassion for these people. But he, he doesn't ask any of that. He just says, is it right for you to be angry in this spot here? And it's kind of a rhetorical question. Um, trying to get Jonah to think about what he was doing, what he was saying. Now, in week two of this series, I mentioned that the book of Jonah was a lot like the story of the prodigal son. And that Jesus tells in Luke 15. And in that story, we see a man who has two sons. The younger one um, tells his father that he wants his inheritance now. And his father gives it to him. And then he goes off and moves to a foreign country and squanders all of his wealth, wastes it. And Jesus said he, he does all that from wild living. And he starts working for a pig farmer. A famine hits the land. He, he's driven to such a state that he, he wants to eat what the pigs are eating, but nobody's really feeding him much of anything. And Jesus said that he came to his senses, and he decides to go back home to work for his father as a servant because he knows that his father would at least feed him and shelter him. And he goes home to his father, and he's got this speech prepared, but while he's a long way off, his father sees him, and he runs to him, and he embraces him, and then he restores him to his household. He tells the servants to throw a party for him. And as we saw, Jonah's kind of a picture of that younger son. He's running away from God, but then he comes to his senses in his time in the great fish. But there is some more to that story in Luke 15, because there is another son so let's read Luke 15, 25 through 30, where it says that, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Well, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. In the first half of Jonah, Jonah's a picture of the younger son, but hopefully now we can see that Jonah's a picture of the older son as well. The older son is angry with his father because he's forgiven his brother, even though he's made terrible decisions and wasted his father's inheritance. Jonah's angry with God because the Lord has forgiven the Ninevites, even though they committed absolute atrocities and were a threat to the Israelites. But again, God just asked Jonah, 
is it right for you to be angry? And we don't get an answer to that question right here. So what does Jonah do in response? In verse 5, it says that Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. When my nephew Peyton was younger, uh, he would have been six or so. Uh, he was upset about something that his dad wouldn't let him do. I can't remember what it was because it was a while ago. But he, he was tired, probably needed a nap. Uh, but he was, he was mad. And somebody told him, you know, just go lay down in your mom and dad's bed and get some sleep. And he kept saying, he's like, I'll go, but I'm not going to sleep. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm mad, so I'm not going to do what you say. Well, a few minutes later, John went in, my brother, and went in to check on him. And he had fallen asleep, uh, but it was the funniest thing because this is how he fell asleep. Arms across his chest, you know, he's got a look of defiance on his face. So I went in and took a picture and posted it to Facebook because that's what good uncles do. Now, I don't have kids, but I've been around plenty, and I was one once. And it seems like when something doesn't go their way, they get all pouty and want to be alone. And they're like, don't talk to me. And that kind of seems like what Jonah's doing here. He doesn't answer God's question, at least not that we're told. And he goes out and he sits east of the city and he makes a shelter so that he can sit in the shade and see what happens to the city. And I wonder what he thinks is going to happen here. Like one commentator writes that Jonah is determined to persevere in the hopes that God, given time, will reconsider his position and exact retribution upon the Nineveh. Another writer writes that uh, despite the Lord's rebuff, Jonah still thinks there might be a chance that God will change his mind again. Inverting the Ninevites' king motivation, he seems to have asked himself, well, who knows, God may turn again and destroy this place. And these are possible, maybe probable reasons for why Jonah went and built that shelter. Uh, you know, he was hoping to get a show like Sodom and Gomorrah, but he never got that. What he got was an object lesson from the Lord. Verse 6 says that then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about this plant. So if you remember from week 2, Jonah 1.17 says that the Lord provides a great fish for, to swallow Jonah. Well, now the Lord is providing this leafy plant to grow up over Jonah and to give him shade that shade was provided to ease his discomfort. Now, the word discomfort has a little bit of a double meaning here. Uh, it could, it's been used earlier in Jonah to mean trouble or distress, like in verse uh, 8 of chapter 1, or wickedness, like in chapter 1, verse 2. So the plant was shading him from his distress, referring to the sun or the heat, or from his wickedness, referring to his anger at God relenting. However, there's another interesting thing about this verse, because this is the first time, the only time in this entire book that we see Jonah happy, and he is very happy about this plant. Like, literally, it says that Jonah was glad with a great gladness. So, it's not just very happy, he's like, super happy that he's got this plant and this shade. But that wasn't the end of God's object lesson, because in verse 7, it says that dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. 
When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And he wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. So God provides a second animal in this book. The first time it was the fish, this time it's the worm. The worm's job was to chew at the plant, and it pretty much immediately withered. Now, people have tried to look for natural explanations at how this could happen so quickly, but again, God provided it, so, you know, there may not be a good natural explanation for it. Um, God wanted it to work, and that's how it was going to go. So the plant withers, and then the sun comes up. Now, I read that the average daily temperature in Mesopotamia was 110 degrees. Now, one summer on a previous job, I traveled to Phoenix, Arizona to do some training. I'd never been to Phoenix before. It was June, um, about this time, because it was after the race that I went. Um, and it was, it, was, it was hot. Like, it was weird, for one, because there's no grass in Phoenix, you know, in a lot of places. Like, it's, people have rocks for yards. I was like, that doesn't make sense to me. And the, the temperature in the daytime was about 113 degrees on average. And it would go up to like 120. That's hot. But you know what they say out in Phoenix and in the dumb weather? Yeah, it's a dry heat. It, it, you know, it's like, oh, I would, I, I would hate to live where you live where it's got, you know, it's 80 degrees, but it's humid or whatever. I was like, whatever, 113 degrees is still hot. Like, surface of the sun level hot. Why would anybody live there? That doesn't make sense. I was so thankful my PT Cruiser rental car had air conditioning that may have got cold by the time I got back to my hotel. I walked out of the building my last day of training, and it had gotten dark because we had to get a lot done, so we were there until dark. And I was like, oh, it's a desert. You know, they always say it's cold in the dark. No, it's still hot. Oh, I hated it. I hated it. Beautiful city. Hated it. <laughs> 110 degrees by itself would be pretty hot. But then God didn't just leave it at that. He provides this scorching east wind. Now, this is not a wind that would be a cooling breeze on a hot day. This is what people would call, they call it a Sirocco or Sirocco. Um, one writer describes it like this. It says, when this wind is experienced in the Near East, the temperature rises dramatically, the humidity drops quickly. It's a constant and extremely hot wind that contains fine particles of dust. It contains constant hot air, so full of positive ions that it affects the levels of serotonin and other brain neurotransmitters causing exhaustion, depression, feelings of unreality, and occasionally bizarre behavior. That's what Jonah's experiencing here. And after experiencing all this, Jonah is again like, all right, you know, kill me now. Get me out of this. You know, that happiness that the plant had given him, that's as dead and gone as the plant is. And we come to the conclusion, though, to this great book at this point. The last few verses, it's a conversation between God and Jonah. Jonah 4, 9, it says, But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. So again, God asked Jonah if it's right for him to be angry. This time he asks about the plant. Now, remember, Jonah didn't answer that before, but now he does because he loved that plant. He's like, yeah, 
So angry, I wish I were dead. As one commentator suggests, Jonah believes passionately that the Lord got things the wrong way around. He said, toward the Ninevites, he should have shown the firm hand of justice. After all, they deserved it. The plant, on the other hand, had done only good in its brief life. There was, therefore, every reason for the Lord to preserve its life. So he's angry about that. Well, God, God responds one final time in verse 10. He says, but the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, but you didn't tend it or make it grow. Spring up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? God said, you're worried about this plant. You did nothing for it. You didn't tend it. You didn't make it grow. It's like, I did that. I provided that. And I also took it away. How much more concern should we have for the city of Nineveh? More than 120,000 people in that city. And they're spiritually inept, which is what he's saying when they don't know the right hand from their left. And we don't get a response from Jonah. That's where the book ends. Some people say it's an oversight, that the author didn't mean to end it like that, but that's just what we have left. But I, I don't think that's true because Jonah is so well-crafted. The book itself is so well-crafted. Kind of like, We've seen this. And I think the ending is intentional because I think it is meant to stir something inside of the reader. The question is not only asked of Jonah, but it's also asked of you and me as readers of this book. There's two things that we can get out of this book in totality, I think. The first is that are we prepared to take our message, the message of Jesus, into the world, to the ends of the earth? Jonah wasn't. He ran from God. But our call today is still the same, right? We are to go and make disciples of all nations, which means we're going to have to interact with some people that we don't agree with, sometimes that we very much vehemently disagree with. And that leads us to the second part. Do we have concern enough for those people to take the message to them. They don't know their right hand from their left. They don't know the Lord. They're apart from him. Are we prepared to do that? That's what evangelism is. And evangelism is such an important thing for a church. It's not just to grow us locally, but it's to bring people to Christ. To do that, we've got to go to everybody. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, he says in Luke 19.10. And he didn't always go to the people that everybody thought he was going to go to, right? He went to the sinners because they're the ones who are in need of a Savior. So whose heart do we have? Do we have the heart of God for the lost or the heart of Jonah, which was a selfish? Evangelism seems scary sometimes. We worry that we're not going to know what to say. Or like Jonah, we don't see a value in it. Or we fear that we could be rejected. Will it even work? But I think we're able to answer these objections or, or fears. If we're worried about what to say, then you just need to trust that the Holy Spirit will give you the words. When Jesus was speaking to the disciples about um, being brought before authorities, he said that they shouldn't be worried about how they were going to defend themselves. 
For in Luke uh, 12, 12, it says, For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And I think the same is true for when you're sharing your faith with others. The Holy Spirit's going to help you through it. He's not going to abandon you. In addition to that, you, you don't need to have all the answers to every objection out there. You can't have all the answers to every objection out there. And we're not always called to do that. We're called to take the story, to share. And what we can share, the easiest thing we can share is our story with God. Because that's, that's yours, that's personal, between you and the Lord. And, and that may be the thing that can help somebody else who may have been in that same situation that you, you were in or what God drew you out of. And it's a story nobody can really take away from you because it is yours. Now, if you don't see a value in evangelism, then, then maybe you need to rethink the value of others. Penn Gillette, the talkative one from Penn and Teller, is an atheist. Both of them are. But um, at one of their shows, a man once gave him a Bible with this lovely inscription written in it, saying that he was praying for Penn and he hoped that he would turn to God. And he hasn't, but he was still moved enough to make a video uh, with his phone. And he, he talked about the kindness of this man, and, and he had a message for people. He said, you know, if you believe something so much, if you believe, like as a Christian, you know, if you believe that somebody is going to be eternally separated from God, and you don't share that message with them, how much do you have to hate that person to to not share that. If we follow Jesus, we believe that all lives have value, right? Because we are all created in God's image. And we don't want to see anybody be separated from God, right? And so we want to share the message with them. The last thing is, if you're afraid of rejection, remember it's not your job to change somebody's heart. You may be very talented, you may have all the right words. You're not God. Thank God we're not God. God is the one who changes people. He's the one who forgives them. He's the one who died for them. The pressure is off for you. You can share Christ with others. You can pray for them. You can hope that they make the decision to follow Jesus. But you, you can't force it on them. It's got to be their decision. But we present it, and we let God work. And we may just be one small part of that, too. Paul talks about that, where, you know, somebody may, may plant a seed, somebody else comes and waters a seed, somebody else comes and harvests it. You know, that, we may be the planters of that seed. We may be the waterers. We may be the ones who get to harvest and baptize and do all the cool stuff. But God's the one who grows the plant, Right? Like, it's not us. And, and so we let God work. But we keep planting the seed. You know, there's the parable of the sower, right? You know, you sow the seed. doesn't matter what the ground is. You're going to sow the seed. And then God's going to work. I think this has been a great book. I think it's been a lovely series that we've been going through over the last four weeks. Um... I love going through books of the Bible, and so that's kind of what we're going to do. Um, 
But it's, it's so much deeper than what we think about when we say Jonah, because it's way more than a fish, right? It's the story of a reluctant prophet who, even though he didn't love the souls of those he was preaching to, God still sent a great awakening under his preaching. And we live in a time where there needs to be a great awakening for the Lord. And we as a people, as a church, we can be a shining city on a hill inviting people to be something greater. Just inviting people to something greater. Something that is found only in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So I'll conclude this series with the most important thing that that reluctant prophet said in his prayer from the fish. He said, salvation comes from the Lord. That's the message that we take. Jonah preached, what, eight words, and a whole city was changed. We can preach a very simple message. Salvation comes from the Lord through Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for you and me. That's, that's what we take. If you're here today and, and you've not yet followed that message, then that, that invitation that Jesus says to follow him, then, then I pray that you would. I absolutely pray that you would. And if you're here today, you know, most of us who have already accepted that call, let's go share it with somebody else. Let's share it with everybody that we, that we know needs Jesus because we love them because they need it. And because, like he says, salvation comes from the Lord. We know the story, and we can live that story well and just show others what it's done in our lives. Amen? I hope you've enjoyed going through Jonah. I have. Um, we're going to, next week we have our, our uh, graduation Sunday where we celebrate our graduates. So if you have a graduate from uh, high school or college, let us know. Send us pictures all that stuff. We like to embarrass them as much as we can, but we'll get them up here. We pray over them, and uh, we're going to talk about the Great Commission with that as well. The week after that, we're going to start a new series. We're going to be in the Psalms, uh, do a summer in the Psalms, and we'll just take a psalm a week for, I think, 12 weeks during that. We've, we have one uh, special guest speaker coming in June as well, uh, which we'll talk about here in a couple of uh, couple weeks. But uh, just to give you an idea of what's coming uh, and what you can prepare for. We're going to start in Psalm 1, so you can start reading Psalm 1. So there you go. Would you pray with me as we close out? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for this book that you have given us in Jonah. The story of that reluctant prophet who... He didn't want to follow your, your instruction, Lord... And yet, you were still able to use him. He had that change of heart, but he still struggled with a total change of heart. I, I pray, Lord, that all of us would not struggle like, like Jonah. That we would just take your word, take your message to the world. We, here at Maple Grove, we can be a, a beacon of truth and a beacon of, of light for you, Lord, here in, in Monroe County and Morgan County. 
And I pray that you would just start something here with this message, Lord, that we are not afraid to take your word out, that we are not afraid to take your message out. That message of salvation comes only from you. Father, we, we take the time now to, to remember the sacrifice that was made so that we are able to do all of these things. The sacrifice of your son Jesus on the cross where he took our sins and nailed them to that cross. And so, Father, we take the, the bread representing his broken body. We take the juice representing his blood and we remember the sacrifice that was made. Lord, thank you for that sacrifice. Because without it, we wouldn't be here worshiping you today. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.